So again, this afternoon, we are focusing on Scripture's teaching of holy baptism, also in regards to the baptism of infants. Uh, so we, are, we will now turn to Lord's Day 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 27. Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No, only the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ remove our sins just as water takes away dirt from the body. But even more important, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. Should infants too be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism, baptism as sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the old covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the new covenant. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's something that I love about the sacraments. They are so simple and yet so complex. Now think about baptism for a moment. It's such a simple thing. In baptism, the minister, he sprinkles a little bit of water on the head of a new Christian or on the child of a believer. It's such a simple thing, but it's packed with so much meaning. Baptism teaches us about the simple gospel message, and that simple message is something a young child can understand. But baptism also, it shows the depths of what Christ has accomplished for us. The most seasoned theologian will never be done exploring those depths. But of course, what is one of the best things about baptism? Well, God has given us this sacrament to strengthen our faith. I think we all know that in theory. Many of us have heard that so many times. The sacraments are there to strengthen our faith. But let's get practical. The last time you struggled in faith, maybe struggled with doubts, did you think about baptism? And to help you grow in your faith, do you ever think about baptism? Well, this is one reason why God gave us baptism. As a sacrament, it is a means of grace, a way that God strengthens our faith. And that's what we want to explore some more also this afternoon. So I've summarized the sermon as follows. In baptism, God teaches and assures us about his gospel promises in Jesus Christ. And this afternoon, we're focusing on two things we're assured of. First of all, the washing away of our sins through Christ's blood. And second, the inclusion of our children among God's people. Now, one major theme found in the Bible is the theme of washing. 
Think simply of the Mosaic Covenant. When people became ceremonial, ceremonially unclean, they went through a cleaning ritual. When the priests entered their service to God, they had to wash themselves thoroughly. And God, God's promises to his people sometimes involve washing as well. God says to his people in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And you can see this throughout Scripture, also into the New Testament. But why does this theme of washing appear throughout the Bible? Well, it's because sin has stained us. It has defiled our hearts. Our souls are dirty from sin. And Scripture teaches something important about this, that people stained with sin cannot just come into God's presence. He is holy. He priests had to go through these elaborate cleansing rituals. God was teaching that not just anyone could come before him. You had to be made clean first. But not only that, God was assuring that if God makes it possible for people stained with sin to be washed clean. And this is what baptism pictures for us. Remember, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he instituted baptism. This is a sacrament given by our God himself. And our gain of sin, all the dirtiness of sin washed away. And through this washing, we can indeed come before him. In baptism, water sprinkled upon a person. It's meant to assure you that in Jesus Christ, your sins have been washed away, gone. Now, when I say that, perhaps you immediately ask the same question as Lord say 27. Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sin? Think of the ceremonial washings again in the Old Testament. The priests went through all those washings and all the sacrifices they made. What did it all point to? They pointed to the shedding of blood for purification to be cleansed from sin. And it all pointed ahead to Christ and his blood shed on the cross. And the New Testament is clear that the blood of Jesus Christ washes away our sins. Acts 15, God cleansed their hearts by faith. So we receive this cleansing by faith. It's not the water of baptism itself. Baptism is meant to strengthen our faith that these things are a reality for our salvation. Baptism is an outward washing. It's meant to assure you of an inward reality. Christ's blood has washed away your sins. And listen to the powerful effect of Christ's blood. 1 Corinthians 3 describes the amazing reality of the New Testament church. This is what we read. Do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Now, this is the power of Christ's sacrifice for our sins. Right? In the Old Covenant, only the priests were allowed in the temple area. 
And only the high priest could enter the innermost sanctuary where God dwelt among his people. And, and only once a year under strict conditions. But now the Spirit of God lives in the church. The church is the New Testament temple of God. And Paul will also tell us in 1 Corinthians 6 that, yes, individual believers too are temples of the Holy Spirit. And the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the cleansing by his blood has made this possible. Hebrews 9 and 10 speaks about the power of Christ's sacrifice. Listen to Hebrews 9, verse 12. Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Redeemed forever. Think of Hebrews 10, verse 14. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And that is why we, as the New Testament church, can be the temple of God. The cleansing power of Christ's sacrifice has made it possible. Baptism is meant to assure you that these things are a reality for you. As individuals and as a church. And not for people who seem to have their life all together. It's meant to assure you that these powerful saving benefits are for you. And so we can believe it with all of our hearts. God has given us this sign to strengthen our faith. And it's by believing what this message tells you. And that's how you will bear fruit. Listen to question and answer 73. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? If... The water baptism itself does not wash away sins. God speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ remove our sins, just as water takes away dirt from the body. But even more important, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. And in this answer we see the double cleansing pictured in, in baptism. Yes, a, a double cleansing. Answer 73 speaks about the cleansing of both Christ's blood and his spirit. Those are two different things. To understand this double cleansing, perhaps an illustration will help. It might sound a bit strange at first, but I think it can help get the point across. Imagine for a moment that you own a property with a lot of garbage on it. You want to get rid of all that garbage. Instead of bringing your garbage to the landfill, you decide that you're going to dump it all on a local parking lot not too far away to save money. So now that parking lot is filled with your garbage. And guess what happens? The city bylaw officer comes around and he says, you're littering, you cannot dump your garbage here, you broke the law. You need to do two things. First, you need to pay a fine. And second, you also need to get rid of all this garbage. It can't stay here. But there's good news. You have two friends who are going to help you out. One of them is rich. He is graciously going to pay the expensive fine so that you do not need to. 
The other one owns a truck and a front-end loader, is going to help you get rid of all that garbage and bring it to the dump. Now, this illustration pictures the reality of sin in our hearts. Our hearts have been filled with the pollution of sin. And we have stained ourselves by our sin. That sin is a violation of God's holy law. And in response, God tells us we need to do two things. We need to pay a penalty for polluting our hearts with sin. And that penalty is death. We also need the pollution of sin to be removed. The beautiful message baptism pictures for us is this. God himself has provided these two things. Christ himself steps in and he pays the penalty for our sins with his blood. Our record of debt is washed away by Christ's blood. He paid the fine. The threat of condemnation no longer stands over believers. He paid the price by dying on the cross. But not only that, the Holy Spirit also begins to work in our hearts to remove the pollution of sin. He works in us to remove the garbage that's there. The Holy Spirit is living water. He's going to cleanse away everything dirty, everything rotten. And by his power, the stench and pollution of sin will be removed from our lives. That's the double cleansing spoken of by the catechism. This helps you in a very real way in your life. Again, when you see sin in your life and in your heart, I urge you to think of baptism. Think about the message it sends and then come to God in faith. Ask him to forgive your sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. Because Christ has paid our debt in full. And then ask him also to cleanse you from the pollution of sin by the power of the Spirit. Knowing that the Holy Spirit is indeed powerful to cleanse you and give you a new heart. Ask God these things and also trust that these things are yours in Jesus Christ brings us to our second point. Now, having said these things about baptism, that leads also to the next logical question, the one brought up by the catechism, should infants too be baptized? You can understand why the question comes up. We've just been talking about the washing away of our sins by Christ's blood, and I emphasize to you that the water of baptism itself does not wash away our sins. Rather, this washing is received by faith in Christ's blood. And the reality is that infants do not have faith. And so it's logical to ask, could, should infants receive baptism? And maybe you wonder about that in your own heart, in your own mind. We as Reformed Church, Reformed Believers, have answered this question with an emphatic yes. Yes, they should be baptized. That's what we confess here. Lord's Day 27 gives the following reason. Infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. And through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin 
and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism as sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of believers, unbelievers. Sorry. So the reason why the children of believers must be baptized is because they have a certain status, a covenantal status. And baptism marks this out for them. Now, some people believe the Bible is unclear about this whole matter about infant baptism. After all, there's not one clear example of an infant being baptized in the New Testament. And other people perhaps think to themselves, well, I can kind of see where the Reformed churches are coming from with their infant baptism, but I don't really think they have a strong case. Well, I would say to you that we should accept nothing less but a crystal clear case for infant baptism. And I am also saying to you this afternoon that the biblical base, uh, case for infant baptism is, in fact, crystal clear. Today, I would like to look at this truth from our reading uh, from 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to look at the specific words here and explore them in light of the Old Testament background. And some of this background was brought to my attention by one of my colleagues, and it's really quite beautiful when you see it. To begin... Let me give you the most basic argument for infant baptism. It's so basic that a child can understand it. In the sight of God, are the children of believers considered clean or unclean? Answering this question will make us see whether or not infants should be baptized. See, if the children of believers are considered unclean, then obviously they must not receive baptism, Furthermore, withholding baptism from them would send the message that they are indeed unclean. On the other hand, if the children of believers are considered clean, then obviously they must receive baptism. After all, administering baptism to them would send the message that, yes, they are clean. Now, we might immediately say, well, the children are unclean. After all, they're conceived and born in sin. We all know that. And indeed, if we view the children of believers only by their nature, we would have to say they are unclean. However, what does Paul say about the children of believers in 1 Corinthians 7? He says, your children are not unclean. They are not unclean. We will look at the reason Paul uses this language in a moment. However, one thing this language undoubtedly shows us is that the children of believers should be baptized. Paul says they are not unclean. Therefore, they must receive baptism to mark out their clean status. After all, baptism done with water marks out who is considered clean. If we withhold baptism from infants, we would be declaring by that fact that the children of believers are unclean. But that's the very opposite thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. They are not unclean, and so they receive baptism to mark them out as such. They are holy. But at this point, we might ask, well, why does Paul use this language of clean and holy here? After all, they are conceived and born in sin. True. 
Well, let's be clear on what he is not saying. He's not saying that original sin has been washed away. Or that the children of believers are born without a sinful nature. Or that the water of baptism itself has washed away their sins, as the Roman Catholic Church uh, teaches. He's also not stating that they are regenerated. We must understand that Paul is using Old Testament language here. Think of the word holy. The word holy was often used to describe the people set apart for, for God himself, devoted to God. In Exodus 19, God tells Israel that they, must, that they will be for him a holy nation. Describe the people of God. Think also of the language of clean and unclean. In the Old Testament, clean and unclean referred to who could be a part of the assembly of God's people. Those who were unclean had to be removed from the assembly of God's people. They did not belong. They were not allowed to be part of it. The unclean people had to be removed from the camp where God lives among his people. But those who were clean, they belonged to that assembly. Well, again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that children of believers are not unclean. And that means they belong to the assembly of God's people in the New Testament. Now, sometimes in the Old Testament, the infant children were not allowed to be a part of God's holy people. We read about one example in Deuteronomy 23 where Moses talks about the children born to certain mixed marriages. If an Israelite man was married to an Ammonite woman, for example, their children had to be excluded from the assembly of God's holy people. In the case of those mixed marriages, the infants took on the unclean and unholy status of the non-Israelite parent. And there are some other examples in the Old Testament. So the in those mixed marriages, the children took on the unclean or unholy status of the unbelieving uh, Gentile parent. However, the amazing thing is that this situation is reversed in the New Covenant. And this is what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 7. In the section we read, Paul is explaining what should be done in mixed marriages. And in the early church, it often happened that people who became Christians were already married to someone else. And many times, a person's spouse did not become a Christian along with them, but stayed an unbeliever. And so you, you can understand why the, the Corinthians would have questions. Well, should the Christian spouse divorce his or her unbelieving husband or wife? They, they probably wonder, does staying married to this person or engaging in a sexual relationship with him or her defile me? Does it affect my status before God? What about our children? Does being married to this person affect the status of my children? Do they have to be excluded from the assembly of God's people like the children described in Deuteronomy 23? You can see why this question would come up. In the Old Testament, usually a clean thing became unclean when it came in contact with something unclean. Usually the holy thing became defiled by the unclean thing. However, here in 1 Corinthians 7, things are different. Why? Well, there were some situations in the Old Testament where an unclean thing was made holy. 
And that happened when it touched something most holy. So again, there's a situation sometimes where an unclean thing was made holy when it touched something that was most holy. In that case, a most holy object made the other object holy. One example is the temple. And our Lord Jesus alludes to this when he says about the temple in Matthew 23, what is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold holy or sanctifies the gold? Why is that significant? What does Paul say about the church in 1 Corinthians 3? The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What does Paul say about individual believers in 1 Corinthians 6? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why the believing spouse sanctifies the unbelieving spouse. The believing spouse's status as a temple of the Holy Spirit overcomes the unclean status of the unbeliever. Doesn't mean the unbeliever has been saved. Someone can be holy without being regenerated. Plenty of examples of that in the Old Testament. However, it does mean that the union between the believer and the unbeliever has not affected the holy and clean status of their children. That's one reason why the new covenant is greater than the old covenant. Children born into mixed marriages belong to the assembly of God's people just as much as the children born to two believers. Just as much. There's no difference. Same goes for children who have been adopted. Let's be clear on one thing. This is not to give the go-ahead to single members seeking a spouse to find an unbelieving husband or wife. The Bible strongly warns against that kind of thing. However, if any Christian does ever happen to find himself or herself married to someone who does not believe, this has not affected the holy and clean status of their children. Or if a child finds himself or herself in the situation where one parent is a Christian and the other one is not, that child need never doubt his or her status. The promises of God are true for them just the same. All the children born to believers, whether one believes, whether there's one believer or two, they are holy just the same. They are clean. So they belong in the assembly of God's people. And they must be baptized to mark them out as such. It's important for us to see this. But we want to know, this is not just so that we can happily continue baptizing infants. But there are some very real practical applications to this. First of all, there is encouragement. God has made his covenant with our children too. Parents, the Lord is there to help you and to guide you as parents. Parenting is not easy. Seek his help and encourage your children too with the promises of God in Jesus Christ. See, my child, look at your status before God. Trust in him. Children, God is eager to guide you in the ways of his covenant. He set you apart for himself. He says you belong to my people. Seek him. Trust him. Don't be afraid of him. Come to God in faith. 
Ask him, him, ask him to strengthen your faith and lead you in obedience. Confess your sins freely to him. Tell him about your struggles and your problems. He is there for you. Look to him. At the same time, there's also a warning. Even though 1 Corinthians 7 calls the children of believers clean and holy, this does not mean they have been automatically regenerated. No. And your status does not allow you to embrace a life of sin and unbelief. In fact, if you do, your condemnation will be the heavier. Covenant children, you must take care not to turn away from Christ. If you reject him, there is no salvation for you. Take care that there is never in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, leading you to fall away from the living God. Finally, let me also leave you with some comfort. Children of believers belong to the assembly of God's people. And death does not cut them off from belonging to that assembly. Rather, they have simply joined the assembly of God's people in heaven. And you can know that. And you can be sure of that. I think of those among us who may have suffered miscarriages, perhaps stillbirths, or even the death of a child. As difficult as those things may be, take comfort also. Your children are with your covenant God in heaven. So do not fear, but be at peace, and praise your covenant God. Amen.